beauty and skincare is always a hot topic around here, and today I want to tell you about a new product line I've discovered that I think you will like, Exponent Beauty. Listeners of the show will receive 20% off their purchase. More details on that in a minute. Exponent Beauty is a skincare brand with a line of activated anti-aging serums that are clinically proven to reduce fine lines and wrinkles. The beauty of Exponent Beauty is their innovative form factor. The powders are activated with a quadruple hyaluronic acid serum in their patented precision-dosed dispenser. The packaging is gorgeous, and the dispenser itself is refillable, so it has also reduced plastic waste. Exponent Beauty's line of serums can be found in med spas and spas and dermatologists' office around the country. The line is dermatologist-recommended and clinically proven to reduce those fine lines and wrinkles, and to increase brightness and radiance, and to firm skin without irritation. No more expired or underutilized products with Exponent Beauty, just high-quality skincare with ingredients that work. Go to ExponentBeauty.com and use code TELL20 for 20% off a purchase of $100 or more. That's Exponent, E-X-P-O-N-E-N-T, Beauty, B-E-A-U-T-Y.com and use code TELL20, T-E-L-L, the numbers two zero for 20% off your purchase of $100 or more. one of my very first friends in Los Angeles. I met her through one of my roommates, Rachel, who I met while working on a TV show for the BBC in just the very earliest months after I moved to LA from Oklahoma. And then after we'd all been friends for a while, several years after we first met, Nora, Rachel, and I, and our other friend Priya, started my very first book club, a book club that I have talked about for years. I wrote about it in my first book, Share Your Stuff, I'll Go First. I wrote about it in the belonging chapter because that book club really proved so formative to me in several different ways. And Nora was one of those co-founders of that group. And we just spent so much time in our 20s and then early 30s kind of figuring out who we were and who we wanted to be. And those book club friendships, they have just remained such important relationships in my life. Nora and I always had a special kinship because we were both writers, but Nora has always been many steps ahead of me in the publishing game. And so I've looked to her for advice over the years and was beyond thrilled when she published her first novel several years ago. In 2012, she published her first novel, Semi-Charmed Life. We had an awesome book release party in my backyard. It was so fun to toast in our book club our friend publishing her book. And then in 2016, she published Will You, Won't You, Want Me? 
And then now here we are this spring. Her third novel comes out next week. It's called Competitive Grieving. And if you haven't already started to see the buzz on this novel, you will soon. There is such great buzz around competitive grieving because this novel would make a great beach read, a summer read. It's about what happens when someone in a friend group dies and there's a rush to show how close you were to this person, who was closest, who deserves this honor or this title or this task. It's a darkly comic novel, but with so much heart and so much relatability. But I'm not going to give too much away. This is a spoiler-free discussion. But Nora and I do talk about some of the themes in competitive grieving, and I really think that you will appreciate this conversation. And I hope that you will add competitive grieving to your to-read list. And now here's my conversation with my friend, the lovely author, Nora Zelovansky. Nora, can I tell you something? What? You are the very first novelist that I've ever had on this show or any show I've ever oh, done. really? I did not know that. I did isn't, not realize that. Isn't that weird? It is only because you read so much. I know, but I don't know how to talk to novelists about their books. Like I talk about novels. I love fiction. I read a lot. I have a lot of nonfiction authors on the show because it's easier in my mind, like from an interview standpoint to talk about a nonfiction book. And so then I, when I'm thinking about talking about a novel, I was like, even though it's you and you're my friend, I was like, I'm nervous. I don't know how to talk about (laughs) fiction like on air I mean isn't that funny it is funny I guess it is a little bit trickier I guess because well in this case the book is like a bit topical but usually if it's just a story you know it's a less obvious conversation I know and you don't want to talk to a novelist about like maybe exactly the same things that you would talk about you would talk about their novel in one way with other people, like in a book club. Right, right. Versus how you would talk about it with the person who wrote it. Right. I mean, you don't want to be like, I didn't like the part where you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. But we're not going to do that with you. I'm glad that I am having you on as my very first novelist guest because we have been friends for like, I don't know, like 19 years, I think, a really That's long time. Crazy. Yeah. That's Isn't that crazy? crazy? Yeah. Do you remember when we met? Yes, I do remember when we met. I mean, I'm assuming, I mean, I don't remember the exact moment, but we met when you were roommates with Rachel, I assume. Yeah, I don't even know if we, I'd moved in with Rachel yet, but we met through Rachel, who then became my roommate. And then eventually we started a book club together. We were the founding members, you and I and Rachel and our friend Priya. We're the founding members of a book club that I have talked about for years now. I wrote about it and share your stuff. I think about our years in book club together and like how formative it was. And so here we are full circle from book club days where we talked about other people's novels to now talking about your novel. And I love it so much. Will you just share with the listeners, if they're unfamiliar with you, will you just share a little bit about like your writing journey and like who you are and, you know, where you grew up and all the things that make you, you and how you got 
here today. Yeah, sure. So I'm like, where to begin? Once upon a, no, I'm just kidding. I grew up in Manhattan on the Upper West Side. I grew up with a, almost what some people might consider to be almost like a parody of an Upper West Side upbringing at that time with an artist father and a curator mother and a sister who was like obsessed with Proust. When I went to college, I ended up through a series of sort of accidents, ended up in California at the Claremont Colleges. And my mother says she remembers having a conversation with me when I was like 15, where she said to me, maybe you'll be a writer when you grow up. And I was like, no, that sounds really hard. <laughs> so I, I didn't have aspirations to be a writer, although I was like a writing tutor. That was my job in college. And I was like that friend everyone came to, to have like their papers corrected, and, you know. My first love of writing, and actually I was on the literary magazine in high school and my, I always wrote personal essay. Like I always wrote nonfiction. I had a series, I worked in the entertainment industry and then in politics, and then I became a freelance journalist in LA. And up until that point, I really never wrote fiction. And then I was just sort of feeling frustrated by the confines of having to use a certain voice for various publications or magazines. And so I just, I did national novel writing month and I tried to write fiction and it kind of worked kind of wait I mean, hold on, hold on. <laughs> I already have so much to say we'll, we'll circle back in a second except we do have to pause here and explain for people who might not know what national novel writing month is NaNoWriMo yes yes I feel like a, such a dork even like going through this but national novel writing month is basically like a process or like a movement where since a lot of people get stuck trying to write a novel because they keep stopping and they doubt their, what they're writing and, and a lot of people sort of start and stop and start and stop. The idea is that every day for a month you write, I think it's like, I think it's 1,677 words or something like that. And you're not allowed to edit and you're not allowed to stop. And at the end of the month, you have a 50,000 word in an ideal world, you have a 50,000 word novel, which is a very short novel. It's like the length of the great Gatsby. But the idea is to like get out of your own way, basically. And I want to say a lot of people do this, like literally, I think it's in November. Is it in November every mm -hmm. year? It's okay, always so November, it's, yeah. It's always November and like thousands of people do it and you can join these groups so that you have accountability of like, I got my words in today or I missed today. So I had to do double the amount of words today or whatever. There's all of this like momentum around thousands of people writing their 1600 plus words every day. Yeah. And I've never done National Novel Writing Month, but I, I have people in my feed who do like in my social media feeds who they'll like, you know, post their progress and that kind of thing. And I know you like said it kind of seems dorky and I know that it can, except that it actually works because you're going to explain that it works. And it's also, I think, you know, I love the community around it. I love that like yeah. people do it and that it like pushes people to do something that they would never do otherwise. Okay. I'm not an advertisement for this. I've never done it. But <laughs> I think, did you, I, this just like came to me, but did, did we with Claire try to do it or do something like that for like, I feel like we were doing something where we met in your like backyard and I don't even know. Um, well, I tried to do it but I didn't try to do a novel. Like I wanted to write nonfiction still, but I was going to use like the community of it and the momentum of it and the word count of it to still write a book. 
Right. And then instead we just like ate food and talked to each other, all of us. <laughs> Yay, writing groups. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I totally agree with you. It, it really does work. Like it gets you out of your own way and the community is wonderful and the people who run it are lovely. And I actually, even for the first time I did it, for, um, I actually took a UCLA class that was like centered around it. Um, oh. So it was like a different level of accountability. So that was, yeah, that was really great for me. I mean, who knows if I would have been able to do it otherwise. So um, you wrote that first book or at the end of the month, you had a, a book intact? I had a mess, it, <laughs> but I could sense that there was something there that was worth like still working on. So I did about a thousand revisions, managed to somehow get an agent, managed to somehow sell the book. And, uh, and that was Semi-Charmed Life. And then the next, and then I wrote another book. It was part of a two book deal um, with St. Martin's called Will You, Won't You Want Me? And that was the story of basically like a faded prom queen who is like 10 years after graduation. And the first line of the book is Marjorie Plum was the most popular girl in school. And it had been a decade since anyone cared. And that's like basically what the book is. And yeah, and, and now um, I'm here. <laughs> I moved to New York in that time and then wrote Competitive Grieving. Well, let's talk about Competitive Grieving because I've read all of your books. I've even read some of your books very early. Mm-hmm. And I can hear your voice in your writing so clearly, obviously because we're friends, but also because I think that you put a lot of your identity into your stories and into your characters. And because I've never like interviewed a novelist before, I don't know if that's common or not, but do you want to talk about what is a little bit autobiographical about competitive grieving if it is? And, and, and when you're doing that sort of share like the overall idea of the novel. I think I do tend to do that, like bring autobiographical elements in, not necessarily in giant fundamental ways, but I tend to pick locations I know really intimately. Sometimes I I have this tendency to like write about New York when I'm in LA and about LA when I'm in New York, I think because like I miss the the other place and want to be there. I'm definitely drawing from my experience and maybe because personal essay was like my first love. I feel like I'm often observing things in people and like taking little notes um, when something interesting happens or someone does something that sort of feels like it could fit into a book. So in the case of competitive grieving, which we are calling a dark romantic comedy about death, basically it's the story of a woman named Ren, who's, I mean, I don't wanna give away too much, but whose who's best friend dies. And basically she's left to try to come to some kind of understanding about the nature of their relationship and about who he was in the aftermath of his death when he's already gone. And she ends up sort of having to grapple with his other friends and relationships. And there's a lot of sort of bad behavior, which often happens in the wake of someone dying. And so she's sort of juggling like her anger and her grief and her lack of understanding and and all of these things. And so, and so that's basically the story with some humor. <laughs> yeah. The idea of a, of a comedy about death was definitely like a little bit challenging sometimes to communicate 
um, to publishers and, and all of that. In terms of the autobiographical element, I mean, I, I fully want to talk about this and anticipated people asking me about it, but I also like, I'm totally unsure of how to answer. Basically in 2017, one of my oldest, dearest, best friends died. Like one of those people in your life for whom it feels like you, you share like a kindred bond. Like there aren't that many people in your life who you find that with. You have a lot of people, right, who you have like deep history with, but this was like, like a soul friend kind of, you know? And we'd known each other since we were in first grade, like really small. And it was a crazy year. It was uh, when Trump took office. Um, so the world was really shifting and I was pregnant and I was turning 40. And it was just a lot that year. And, and I ended up my, I'm sorry, this is very heavy all of a sudden, but um, my uncle also died. And then I found out a college friend of mine had died. And I just was sort of a bit shaken to my core about the nature of sort of what I understood the world to be versus what it is. And in the wake of his death, there was questionable behavior on the part of some people, maybe at points, including myself, hard to know. But I did really come to, after a while, understand that everybody was just kind of seeking recognition of this close relationship they had with this really special person in an impossible scenario where the person's no longer there. And like, so many people have these stories. I mean, that's what I'm finding with the book just starting to sort of creep out before it actually launches is that everybody has these stories that they want to tell and that I really welcome them telling about losing someone and then people's behavior in the aftermath and, you know, feeling like, but one person felt like they were closer with this person and shouldn't they have the role of whatever, disseminating information, giving a eulogy, like whatever, to having stuff that they owned, you know, whatever it might be. And another peer person sees it differently, you know? And so that definitely inspired the book, but it's funny. <laughs> I'm just going to keep saying that. <laughs> it is funny. There are funny moments in it, but I thought that, you know, there's several themes and you touched on a lot of them, but one of the ones that struck me the most and that speaks to even the title competitive grieving is not only the idea of when someone dies that you have the people around them being like, oh, but I knew him best, but, you know, she and I had a special relationship different than yours. Like everyone mm -hmm. sort of wants to claim their part or their role, but also when Ren, the main character, as she is irritated by the friend group and the family who are acting this way, she is self-aware enough to start to see like, oh, actually there are parts of him, of Stuart who died that I didn't know. Like mm -hmm. he did have a valid relationship with this person that I don't like. And so it's, it slowly dawns on her throughout the book that, that her relationship with Stuart was like a really singular thing and that there were a lot of facets to him that she didn't know. That resonated with me uh, not only in death, although that's what we're talking about is death, but I think that can happen in a lot of places in life when you go through a mm -hmm. breakup or, a, you know, a friendship changes or life changes it, when you start to realize like, oh, what I have, what I thought this relationship was or what I thought this person was is only my perspective. Like I'm, I'm 
I only see this through a tunnel and it's very hard to see our relationships and the people that we love in like a big picture sense. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Like really, really do. One thing that I became really aware of during that time and that I feel like I have been aware of in my relationships more since, like with people who are alive and well, is that there are multiple versions of everybody. You know, like you play different roles in people's life and people play different roles in yours. And so while you might see a person a certain way, for instance, like, my friend, um, whose name was Nick, like, I saw him as sort of like, I don't even know how to exactly articulate this, but as sort of like laid back in certain ways and not like super ambitious in certain ways, um, in other ways he was. But for other people who I met later after he died, he was like the one who had it, everything under control, like the person who they looked to for guidance. And that was like really interesting to me that there's just like, as you said, these, these different ways to experience a person and different ways to be with different people. Yeah. It's so interesting. Let's talk about location for a minute. Competitive grieving is set in New York city, but there's a main character from LA. And Mm -hmm. so I felt like I could just hear your take on these places and these people. And one of the things that you've done in all of your books, and I love that you do this, is that you you name drop things like brands and, you know, I don't know, like cool things, music, documentaries. I don't know. You sort of name drop like these, what whatever is cool or not cool as the case may be to characters or in settings. You've done this in all of your books. I've always noticed it. I think the number one reason I've always noticed it is because you do this in real life. (laughs) (laughs) Not name drop in the negative sense of that, but like when I first met you, like I put you in a category of like, Nora knows all the things. Like she knows what the popular brands are before they're popular. Like she knows the indie band that's going to make it big before anybody knows. Like, I feel like you always, I don't, I don't know if it's a city mentality because you grew up in Manhattan or you, and then you went to college in LA. So you're like, you are literally in the places where these things are happening. And I didn't grow up like that. So I don't even know like what to look for in a sense, (laughs) but I don't even know if this is leading to a question. I'm just saying like, do you do that on purpose? Do you do these little nibbles of pop culture or of, I keep thinking of brands because you all, you pointed me towards like cool brands before I knew they were cool. Do you do that on purpose? That's what I'm asking. I, I really, I, It's so funny. Yeah. I have this tendency to like reference things. And actually, I think for me in my brain, it's a kind of shorthand. So like I can use like a brand that somebody's wearing to encapsulate who the person is for you, or I can try to. (laughs) So I think that's like a natural way that I sort of move through the world. Sometimes I actually think it's not the best thing that I do it in my books because it definitely puts you in a certain time and place. And maybe sometimes it's better if the story is like a little bit more evergreen, but yeah, I just, I just think it's sort of how I move through the world. And I think it's partially also just having spent so many years as like a lifestyle journalist writing about fashion and design and beauty and travel and all that stuff that that's just sort of like how I process the world. I always notice it. I was noticing it in this book too. And I was wondering like, 
even if you aren't familiar, if the reader isn't familiar with exactly what you're referencing, you do it in such, because I'm not, P.S. I'm not cool enough to always know what you're referencing, but you do it in such a way of like the character who is wearing a certain brand of boot or whatever, like, you know, perfectly done boot. I was like, I don't, even know if I know what she's talking about, but I know what she's talking. Right. (laughs) Good. Good. I'm glad. Yeah. And, and you're so right. Like the locations, like it's so fun for me to write about LA, especially like even think about LA, especially now when like, because of the pandemic, I haven't been there in so long. I, I tend to, the books tend to sort of go back and forth between those cities a lot one thing I was thinking about actually, because I was thinking about why did I choose LA and like, why did I choose a character who, because the, for those who don't know, the, um, the friend who dies is a TV actor. Like wh- why that sort of storyline? And I realized that I tend to write about the idea of fame in a lot of different, in, in a lot of my books, sort of the like, absurdity of it in certain ways and and the sort of complicated nature of the way we perceive fame and like the impact it has on people and I was just thinking about like why that would be and I think it has something to do with growing up in New York and like the sense growing up in New York that for some reason like with my sort of social group that for some reason it wasn't like enough to just be a regular person that there was some idea that like you were meant to become somebody like known and then like being in LA as you were in the aughts which was like the rise of Paris Hilton and like the craziness of all that and I feel like there's no place that at least for me maybe because that's where I was that is a has that sort of element more than LA you know Mm -hmm. With sunshine, outdoor activities, and so many fun things to do outside, it is impossible not to enjoy all of these good weather days up ahead. Of course, we all know that more sun and fun means more sweating, and yes, more odor. That's why I'm excited to tell you about Lumi. Lumi is the first of its kind in the full body deodorant world and is seriously safe to use on any and every part of your body. It was created by an OBGYN who saw firsthand how regular body odor was being misdiagnosed and mistreated. I especially love that Lumi deodorant is baking soda and paraben free. It is also pH balanced for safe use on all areas of your body. You can choose from a variety of fresh scents like clean tangerine, lavender sage, and toasted coconut. Lumi's starter pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice, like a mini body wash or deodorant wipes, and free shipping. As a special offer for listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with code U at lumideodorant.com. That equates to 40% off your starter pack when you visit Lumi, L-U-M-E, deodorant, D-E-O-D-O-R-A-N-T, Dot com and use code U, Y-O-U. One thing that you don't really tiptoe into or barely in the book is because the person who dies in the book is an actor, a fairly famous actor. I wondered if you purposely didn't get into the part of public grief when someone you know who dies belongs, if you will, to the public. Mm-hmm. And obviously not everybody is going to relate to this, but having had someone 
close to us die who was a public figure, it is a really huge element to the aftermath of that is like having other people weigh in their commentary on Mm -hmm. that person who did, and they didn't know him. And Mm -hmm. of course, everyone weighs in on celebrity deaths and everyone has the right to do that. But, but it's a, it's a pain point for sure for the family or friends. Yeah. I mean, I I made like a small reference to it and I definitely was thinking about it a lot because in some ways, like that's like the very epicenter of competitive grieving, just as a concept, you know, like all of these, like over the top Facebook posts about like what a celebrity who you've never met means to you or meant to you and how like that was taking ownership again. Like that was my song. That was my childhood, you know, and all of those things. I think it just felt like such a big can of worms that like, I felt like I couldn't go too deep in it, but I think it's fascinating. And I do think it's like you're saying, like a very essential part of, of how we experience grief, like in the modern world, you know, even, even when it's not a person of note, it's like, there's been so much conflict over like, well, who somebody posted on Facebook before everyone's been told, you know, Mm -hmm. or whose right is it to tell people, you know, whose right is it to post on Facebook or Instagram or whatever it is, you know, actually with my friend, he was in a band that had gotten some attention. And so he had like a taste of fame for a period of time and then it fell apart. And I think in some ways that was like so destructive for him too. So there's sort of like the role of fame in all of it as well, you know? Mm -hmm. When celebrities die, I always do think about the family, of course. I mean, it's hard not to, but a lot of times, like the most notable ones, they, it's not just about that human. It's about like this whole other thing that they represent for you. Like the two Mm -hmm. things that come to mind are recently, of course, Kobe Bryant dying last year in the most tragic and hard way possible. But like Kobe Bryant is like the icon of a whole city and a sport. And like, it's like so much bigger than him as a human. Mm -hmm. And then another one that comes to mind, because that one's like so outsized and worldwide. But another one that comes to mind that I know you'll relate to is a few years ago um, when Kate Spade died and uh, the fact that she died by suicide. And Mm -hmm. it was so devastating to people. Now she's not a celebrity and that I don't feel like people felt like they knew her as a human, but her brand represented something to people and her manner of death was obviously very triggering to people. And I felt like, I remember when she died, I felt like the comments, the public commentary on it, the fan commentary or not fan commentary on it was so big. Didn't it feel big to you? Yeah. I feel like that. I feel like people had a really dramatic response. And the reality is that, I mean, something I've come to also really believe in the last few years is that when you grieve somebody, you're grieving them, of course, especially if there's somebody really close to you, you grieve them in this because you're going you're gonna to miss them, you know, because you want them around and you want to be able to pick up the phone and call them. But you often find yourself grieving the version of them that they were when you were maybe closest to them. You know, if it's mm. not someone who's in your life every day, if it's um, a childhood friend or, you know, a college friend or, you know, someone you knew in your twenties, whatever, that it feels like a piece of your history is disappearing. 
Um, and, and with that person, like proof of that history kind of. And so in some ways you're, you're mourning the loss of that person, especially during that time, but you're also mourning like a loss of yourself a little bit. And so in, in the case of even like Kate Spade or whomever, like people who, you know, have died, who the public feels really attached to, I think that's why we see people saying like, I listen to that song every day for whatever period of time, because they're like, oh, like that period of time in my life has now like shifted in my mm-hmm. head. Like it, it will never quite be the same memory, you know? And like, it's about like mourning the passage of time too. Yeah. And you definitely see that with Ren, your main character and how she's relating to her past and kind of reckoning with her past in the relationship with Stu and yeah, what it says about her as much as it is about like him actually being gone. You know, it is, we all, it is about ourselves in some ways. Yeah. And I, I, I hope that the, the story sort of of their relationship, which, which is sort of like parsed out th- um, throughout the book um, between her funeral planning and <laughs> for all different people and all of that. I hope that that's sort of compelling in its own right. You know, just like the nature of the ups and downs of their friendship before any of this happened. And the, the periods of time, like you often talk about, you know, and even in your book um, about like the nature of the way that friendships have to sort of stretch and change and sometimes even kind of fall apart before they can come back together, mm-hmm. you know. Let's talk about, because you just said about that, you sort of piece out the the different moments in their friendship. You sort of string that along throughout the book. That's a theme. But I also want to talk about the structure of the book because there you're doing some really interesting things in the chapters. I felt like there's a couple of things that you do. You have certain conversations by text and like with the text bubbles, which I think is so relatable. You know, even just a few years ago, that would have been a device that felt like, I don't know, not like, like maybe it was not going to be evergreen, like you were saying earlier, but right, now right. I'm like, no, like this is a way we communicate. This is like how people live out their relationships. So you have text bubbles in some of the conversations and then you have these like moments from Ren, who's either writing a note or just thinking these thoughts to Stu who has died, just like those little notes to him throughout. And then You also do this sort of interesting thing is one of her coping mechanisms is to start funeral planning everyone around her, like who hasn't died yet. Like even strangers that she meets, she's like, what kind of funeral would they have? And then she (laughs) does these, this is where I found a lot of the humor in the book is that she would have them die of a certain funny way. And then they would have a certain song played and a certain type of funeral food. And that's just like sort of the way her brain is looping on that because she's in real time, actually, truly funeral planning. Does this just come to you? They're so creative, all of those things. I really had a good time writing those. Um, I think it's like, I used to talk to one of, I one of. I was not that long ago, actually, was talking to one of my friends from high school about how when I'm on the train, like what you think about on, when you're on the subway in New York. And she was saying, she thinks about... <laughs> She would like kill me if I said her name, but I won't. But she said she thinks about who she would most likely have sex with on the train. Oh. Like if she had to have sex with one person on the train, who would it be? 
And I was saying, this is so telling about our personalities. I always think if there was an emergency, who is the person who I would be able to partner with most safely to get us out of there? (laughs) But I think, I think that it partially comes from sort of that kind of concept, like just sitting there and looking at people and sort of, again, trying to sort of categorize them in your brain or understand who they are by like mannerisms or the way they behave or a pair of boots, you know? And so, yeah, the funeral planning sort of came from that. And then I did like during sort of researching like a deep dive into all of these like funeral practices in different countries and like sort of modern trends where like, for instance, like people have their funeral, like set up mock funerals before they have a funeral, just so they can like attend their own funeral basically. Wait, that's a trend? That was a trend. I don't want to misspeak, but I think it was a, I think it was a trend in Korea. And there was another trend also of people almost like setting up the cadaver in like a wax museum-y kind of way, like doing something that they would normally do instead mm-hmm. of like lying in a casket for like a week, these kinds of things. And so then it became really fascinating. It's like all the way that people, the ways in which people reconcile grief, which of course is like so relevant as it turns out right now, because we're in like this mass grieving place mm-hmm. because of the pandemic where there's been so much loss and, and people haven't even been able to have funerals, you know? Um, and so then it's like, well, how do you, how do you sort of reconcile what's happened and come to terms with what's happened without these sort of important, um, rituals that we have um, that help us get through all this. Um, Mm -hmm. And that actually sort of brings me back to the competitive grieving thing, because I really also think that while previously when people would post on social media, it evoked like a lot of judgment. But now since people have been so isolated, I've been noticing like people on Twitter posting about like having lost loved ones and people being like so supportive and like wonderful. And of course you always have like the one person who's like, why did you write this on social media? And everyone's like, shut up. But, <laughs> um, but it's kind of amazing. Like it's, I think it's like changed the way we, we think about all this. We had to come up with new rituals, you know? Mm-hmm. Totally. Was this book, you know, you didn't write it in NaNoWriMo. You didn't write it in National Novel Writing Month, but how did the writing process of this one compare to your past books like do you have a writing process now? Do you feel like you have a formula? Not that the, the novel isn't formulaic, but like for you as the creator, like what, do you feel like you've got this down? How is this oh, different? God, no. <laughs> I think, um, I think that um, before you have kids, well, I don't want to speak for other people. Before I had kids, I was like, I have a very particular needs in terms of like how and when I can write and what I need to have set up so that I can, you know, effectively write. And then once I had kids, especially small ones, I was like, I have 15 minutes, I'll write it down. You know, I wrote, I've written entire chapters of books, like in the passenger seat of the car while the kids were asleep and Andrew was driving like somewhere, just because you suddenly get an inspiration and you write it down. I'm sure, well, I don't want to speak for you, but I would imagine that happens to you too. Like, right, it happens in the shower and suddenly you're like, I'm soaking wet, but if I don't write this down, I'm going to forget. And in a weird way, NaNoWriMo, even though I I didn't officially do it, it does shape the way that I write. Because I think I write from a slightly anxious place. So I do tend to want to get it all out. 
and then go back. Like I find it much less scary to edit than to write the first draft. Um, so I do kind of try to write it quickly um, with small children and being pregnant and actually all of these other factors. I definitely was a little bit slower on this one than I have in, been in the past sometimes. The thing that's different about this one is this is the first time that I had the title before I had the book, like at all. Like I was like, I'm going to write a book. It's going to be called Competitive Grieving. And this is what it's going to be very loosely. But I, the title kind of drove the book in a way. Because um, you were loosely sharing on an existing experience. Yeah. I mean, even though like the characters in the book are not anybody we know and, um, and, and the character of the friend is not like my friend and his, my friend has a wonderful, lovely family and all that. I was in the sort of thick of this experience and watching it unfold in this way. And I was like, there's so much in this to talk about. Mm-hmm. You know, so I was like this, I was just talking to a really old friend of mine on the phone and I was like, I just feel like it's like competitive grieving. And then I was like, you know what? I literally said to him, you know what? I'm going to write a book called competitive grieving. And so that's, that's what happened. And then you did. And then I did. But do you do that? Do you take notes at like random times? Like, do you have like ideas for things or the way you want to express something and suddenly have to write it down? I do. I have an app on my phone where I brain dump it because Mm. otherwise I will literally forget it. I will have a really good either creative sentence or thought or idea for a a podcast topic or like any, anything like that. And if I don't capture it, like I have mom brain or 40 plus brain or any of the things, (laughs) if I don't write it in my, I usually write it in my phone, which isn't my favorite way to capture something to type in my phone like that, but I always have my phone with me. And so I just, that's where I get it down. There's a romantic element to the book that we have not (laughs) touched on yet. Um, And I don't want to give anything away because that unfolds. And so I, I don't want to, but do you like writing the romantic parts? (laughs) I, Sometimes I'm like, I'm going to write a book with no romance in it. And then I'm like, I can't. (laughs) I'm such a lover of like romantic comedy in general, like in movies and TV and in books. I sometimes think that my, my greatest ease in writing is writing um, like flirty banter. I feel like for whatever reason that comes easily to me. And so I really enjoy writing those parts of the book. I do not enjoy writing like anything to do with sex scenes. I feel like it's so hard for it to feel like compelling, but not creepy. Hopefully I've like achieved that, but it's, it's definitely those kinds of scenes I find to be challenging. No, Um, I thought you handled the intimacy well. And I actually noticed in sort of the flirty banter that you're saying, which sometimes was happening in the scene and sometimes was happening over text in the text bubbles, like we saw, I remember thinking, and again, I'm only thinking this because we're actually friends, but I remember thinking, I bet Nora was such a good flirter <laughs> pre-marriage, of course. I mean, yeah, still, no, I'm joking. <laughs> no, I don't know, but I definitely always liked 
like both in like a romantic situation and just with like friends, like the like people who like to banter with me or like, you know, make jokes. Okay, so last question that I didn't prep you for this. So hold on tight. Okay. But I really always like to ask anybody, almost any guest, but especially writer guests to share like the best books, a best book or two that you've read lately. Like, like just the, whatever you've enjoyed lately, it can be any genre, any, anything. What's the best thing that you have read lately? Oh, well, I will tell you, especially because I know that you've expressed a similar thing that I have had a lot of trouble reading since the pandemic started. And I would like to say that for the first six months of the pandemic, I have a very close friend, Sarah McLean, who's a romance novelist. And I only read her romance novels for six months. <laughs> like, that's all I um, and I really hadn't read like romance, like straight up romance since I was like pretty young, like in high school or something. And I loved it. It was like amazing. Just what the doctor ordered at that time. But I'm just starting to get back into reading stuff. And so I've recently read... I feel like none of this is as new as I wish it was. It doesn't have to be new. In fact, I've been trying to force myself to read less new. And so I would welcome anything that's not that new. Well, I read not now kind of a little while ago, I read Goodbye Vitamin and that like really stayed with me. I love that book so much. I just feel like it also sort of similarly tackles like a tragic situation but in like this sort of raw straightforward funny kind of way I love that book so much my favorite book I read in the last year was probably The Great Believers oh yes one of my favorites too yes right yeah so devastating I it honestly haunted me for like six weeks afterwards I like couldn't function (laughs) but but I loved it so much And I can't even believe I'm admitting this, but it took me until now, like just recently to read The Searcher, the the last ton of French. Did you like it? I thought it was, I, yeah, I liked it. I did. It was so different. Like it was sort of just like, it was so low octane in certain ways uh, compared to her other books. It took me a really long time to get into it. I don't know if that's because of COVID. It's slow. (laughs) <laughs> or it's slow. Like, I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> I can't venture. But if you think it's slow, then maybe it's not my fault. Well, I didn't love that book. And listener, I think that um, Nora's bringing this up because we discovered Tana Fringe at the same time, actually, or we read it for book club, our book club a million years ago. We read her first book in the woods and we had our book club as a whole had very dramatic reactions to that book. We loved it or hated it, but we've all read Tana French since then. And The Searcher, which I talked about, when it came out in the fall, I, you know, I don't want to be that person who like, is like play the old stuff or whatever as, <laughs> as, as artists. Still, you do want the old stuff. Yeah. I really want the old stuff. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. Well, I think the, the likeness is the one that always like stayed with me the most in some ways. Yeah, the um, likeness is so good. And it, and so anyway, I, I appreciate that Tonda French is trying new things and like maybe she's evolving and I can like fully appreciate that objectively. But just from a reader standpoint, I was like, bring back the detective. <laughs> You're like, I miss them. Yeah, no, I hear you. I do. And that actually makes me feel like I wasn't responsible for how long it took me. And I did before that, I read more quickly, Red, White and Royal Blue, which I hadn't read. Uh, I haven't read that. It is very enjoyable. 
<laughs> I know pe- I, people love that book. I, I'm not a, um, you know, I'm not a monarchy person. Oh, but it's not really, I mean, now I'm sorry. Now I'm just like talking to you, like, we're, <laughs> but, um, but it's like, it's about the son of the president of the United States falling for the Prince of England. Like they're like, it's, it's ridiculous. It's, <laughs> it's really fun. Okay, maybe, I, maybe I should. Yeah. I, I need fun right it's now. It's not like period drama, you know? Okay, good. Which I, which I also do love. Okay, this was so fun. Thank you for coming and talking to us about competitive grieving. I think that my listeners will love this book and take something from this book. If they wanted to follow you after they purchase competitive grieving, of course, if they wanted to follow you or know more about you, where could they do that? I guess the best place is probably Instagram. And my handle is just at Nora Zelovansky. So if you can figure out how to spell my last name, you can do that. (laughs) That's probably the best place. Yeah. I'm just so excited. Like, as you know, from personal experience, actually this conversation has really helped me get to just a place of being just really excited for this book to come out and for it to sort of be in the world and have the life it's going to have. And, you know, you work so long and hard on these books and then you don't know you know, how it's, what the trajectory is going to be, but this one in particular is close to my heart for obvious reasons. So thank you for having me. I, this has been so, it's always so fun to talk to you and I'm so grateful to be your first novelist. I had no idea. Yeah, you really are. It's amazing. I'm so glad it was you. just listened to the 10 things to tell you podcast you can find the show notes and subscribe to episode emails at 10 things to tell slash podcast and you can follow us on facebook and instagram at 10 things to tell you remember this is an interactive podcast i have 10 things to tell you and you have 10 things to tell so take this topic to your journal or a friend or post on social media using the hashtag 10 things to tell you. These episodes are meant to bring connection with others and ourselves and spark better conversations. Thanks for listening. Now go share something.